You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about something other than Doctor Who, mostly, so that you don't have to. I'm JR, and, uh, well, as a Christmas present to myself this year, I've decided to do something a bit unusual for the Doctor Who podcast, and instead of talking about Doctor Who, or instead of talking to somebody who's involved in the world of Doctor Who, instead I've got one of my favourite rock stars on instead. (laughs) I am talking to Paul Draper, as was of Manson. Hello, Paul. How are you? Hi, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing well. I've got to say, well, this has got my Christmas off to a great start. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, um, look, first things first, we're going to do this a bit out of sequence, but first things first, the people who are listening will want to know why I've got you on a Doctor Who podcast. And, well, the reason for that, the most obvious reason for that, is the album Six, which featured Tom Baker. <laughs> How, yeah, did that, how did that come about and what was it like? <coughs> You'll have to excuse me because I'm full of either the flu or a very heavy cold at the moment. Oh, you probably so, called that off me. Yeah, but um, yeah, so Tom uh, Baker was uh, obviously my childhood hero, um, along with a couple of other people, Patrick McGowan, John Lennon, but you know, I think he was up there and I was a big sci-fi fan. And... Uh, I ended up in a rock band, uh, you know, one way or another. And, um, we'll get on to that. Yeah. We, uh, scaled the Britpop heights and, you know, toured around the world and did our first album, which was, uh, you know, a big success in the pop world. And, um, we ended up in a studio in London with free reign and a big budget to do whatever we wanted to, you know, and, uh, and I, I, I just thought, you know, I wanted to incorporate a lot of interests on the album that I was interested in when I was young. So there was lots of in, elements in there from when I was a, uh, a kid, and one of them was Doctor Who. And we incorporated, you know, the police box in the artwork, and uh, there's a little sound of the police box taken off at the end of the album. And, of course, we got Tom Baker in to do a voiceover. <laughs> and, um, well, he's kind of on the album cover as well himself, isn't he? Yeah, I think he's dancing around there on the top floor, isn't he, on the, on the front. And uh, obviously that came later with the elements, like the lyrical elements from the yeah. album be- became the artwork. We did that at the end. But I think, you know, I, I don't think we actually expected him to, to get him on the album. Um, 
Um, what happened was we spoke to our managers um, and we said, we've got this voiceover to do on this album. We want to do this crazy idea of making a vinyl album with two separate sides on it. I mean, in what was the CD era. Um, and to break up the two sides of vinyl, we wanted to do something a bit crazy. So, it, you know, it wasn't a song as such, but just obviously it was a CD. So it was nothing visual um to be had there but just something sonically bizarre that would separate the two sides of this fictitious piece of vinyl <laughs> you know if you look at if you look at the album cover it looks like something that's from the vinyl age you know it looks like something from the 70s tom baker was from the 70s and the whole thing was about making a fictitious al vinyl album an lp in the 90s and we originally wanted to try and get the cd placed in a full-sized album cover lp yeah but emi weren't going to go for that mm. but they did go for tom baker and um <clears throat> i think tom you know was uh it was before he'd done little britain obviously it was before the reboot of doctor who and um, I think he'd had his, um, uh, you know, autobiography out. I think I'd uh, read it or listened to the audio book of it at that point. Um, but, you know, he wasn't he hadn't had his resurgence as a national treasure, should we say? Mm. I don't think Doctor Who had had its resurgence <clears throat> as, as a national treasure at that point. You know, and it was uh, I think it was just viewed as an oddity. And I, I think I. You know, Tom Baker never really went out of my life. You know, he did the book tower and then, you know, you know, you'd occasionally hear, well, not occasionally, you'd often hear him doing adverts. You know, I can't remember exactly what for, whether it was, you know, Findus Peas or whatever, or was that Orson, <laughs> you know, Orson Wells or whatever. But, you know, he was a jobbing actor and, um, he never really went out of my life. You know, partly, uh, a part of that was because I had a massive VHS collection of videotapes of, Tom Baker episodes, you know, it's easy, you know, now I take Doctor Who every single day on the horror channel in the UK, and when I finish work in the dead of night, I flick it on and see what's on, so today I know there's two episodes of Genesis of the Daleks on today, which I'll be watching later on tonight. Oh, very for, nice. For about the millionth time, you know, so, <laughs> but it's quite, I, I, whoever, someone out there will listen to this who knows someone who buys the episodes at the horror channel, can you please buy some other episodes, because you're just showing the same ones round and round. Um, but, um, but, you know, it's great having the classic episodes on every every day, but anyway, <clears throat> Just going back to uh, what we were saying, the um, I think um, we said to our managers, can we get Tom Baker in on the album? And they probably like rolled their eyes, the same as when I said, can we get a 32-piece string orchestra in on the first album? But you've got to remember, it was the golden age of the music industry, and they've had stranger requests, you know. It wasn't the strangest request they probably ever had. No. And um, we explained to them what it was for, and it came back to us that, yeah, Tom was up for doing it as... You know, one of his jobs, and I think at that point he was living down, was he in France or near Hastings, or he was out in the country anyway, and was spending most of his days mowing the lawn. I think at that point he said he was living in a an old church or on a graveyard or something. Yeah, and yeah. He, he had a lawnmower, a sit-on lawnmower, and he just amused himself by mowing over people's graves all day, you know, it was, uh, and, and, and laughing, chuckling to himself. So when we called him and said, do you want to come and do a voiceover to separate this fictitious vinyl album? Uh, he, he was up for it straight away. And uh, so we got the call back. He said, yeah, he's coming in next Thursday. 
and um, <coughs> we were working at a recording studio in Barnes in um, uh, sort of southwest London, and he couldn't get there because he came in on the train to Waterloo or, or whatever, and uh, so they said, let's book a studio in central London, so I think we booked Sony Studio, was it Whitfield Street, or some studio right in the West End, anyway, where, where he'd been in for a meeting or something like that. So he, uh, we were waiting in the studio for him, and he just turned up, uh, you know, just, you know, relatively smart looking, but, you know, it was him. I mean, I know I saw him in, uh, you know, make the guest appearance in The New Who. Yeah. Um, and he didn't look like that at all. I mean, he looked very old, you know, now he's an, he's an old man now. But he didn't look, you know, he, didn't, he wasn't that old when we met him. He was, uh, you know, his, his hair had greyed, but barring that, he was still... You know, the same, uh, the same old Tom Baker, really. And, uh, so, you know, he did, um, he came in the studio and, uh, you know, obviously he's a, a thespian, a lovey, you know, a, a scouser who's gone into the liberal arts like myself. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, he, you know, he was full of confidence and just wandered in and hello, you know, and blah, blah, blah. And he, we had a microphone set up in the live room and we give him the uh, piece of paper with the lyrics written on that uh, the guitarist had done out of the band. And he just went in and he did a take. And I just looked at Spike, who was producing the album for me, very famous um, producer, mixer, worked with everyone from Madonna to Liam Gallagher to, you know, I mean, everyone. And Tom Baker just did the first take and he looked, just looked around and he goes, that's it, we've nailed it. <laughs> and we were like... Um, We've got to get, you know, we've got to get our money's worth out of him. We've got to at least do one more take. And so we got him to do a second take, but we never used it. That take is sitting in an EMI archive somewhere. <coughs> and you can go to EMI and approach them and get these things out the archives. And, um, cause I know uh, we've had like dance producers wanted to get the vocal track for a Manson song, Wide Open Space, so they can use on remixes and, you know, I think they have to get permission off the artist or whatever, but you can get them. So someone somewhere will listen to this and one day try and go and get that other take of Tom Baker doing it, the second take. Me? And, uh, maybe, I probably will. <laughs> yeah, probably. I don't know whether you're allowed to get it, but it's there. It's on a piece of tape somewhere. I know EMI have been digitizing all their uh, tapes, but I believe they're all in the basement at Abbey Road. So there's, there's only two takes of Tom Baker doing it, but I'm sure there'll be bits of incidental conversation between... Tom Baker and uh, Spike, the uh, uh, producer, and me and him were sitting at the mixing desk in, uh, in, in I think I'm sure it was Whitfield Street Studios, but it'll be on the tape box anyway. So, um, yeah, hopefully, you know, being, you know, if we're talking about time travel here, give it two or three hundred years time. And uh, when people are looking back at the history of rock and roll and the history of sci-fi and they go and try and find that, it's there somewhere. So uh, they might find it from this. Wow. and uh, do a podcast about it at some point in the future <laughs> the hunt for the missing take or whatever but uh yeah so we just literally used the first take what was and, it like meeting him then um he's uh i mean i, I was really nervous really weird because we met everyone you know i'd meet i'd meet like people like you know god diana ross and you know all of you know all the pop stars and you know gary newman who was a hero of mine and all you know david bowie and 
you know, Paul McCartney and, but it was just odd meeting Tom Baker because he's just such a big presence, such a looming presence. And of course he's a thespian as well. And like thespians are different from us muso lot. You know, the muso lot can be quite, you know, unassuming and, you know, you, you just, you just have that thing that, um, you save it all for when you go on stage and then you can throw yourself around and you learn that aspect of, showbiz should we say you know yeah, I mean, yeah. i'm quite a quiet person you know in my own life but walk on stage and you know you just turn it on you know and the, the thespian lot have that uh thing you know from stage school it's all in the eyes and you know and uh you know he, he's got that presence about him there's no there's no question about it you know you know very uh thoroughbred voice that they all um mm. Teach. It's weird because where I live, um, I often bump into an actor called Frank Finley from the 1970s. Oh yeah, and, yeah. Uh, you know he's got a very thespian voice, but get a few. He has a few drinks, and then he'll go, he'll go. Don't tell anyone, but I'm from Bolton, you know. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> and then he'll tell us all his stories about doing Mutiny on the Bounty with uh, David Essex and how they made the. Uh, the boat too big and they couldn't get out of the Drury Lane theatre and go on tour with it and all sorts of bizarre thespian <laughs> stories. So, you know, they're, um, you know, they're, uh, you know, so we had that thing about him. And, um, after that, we, uh, we finished the take and, uh, he said, should we go for a beer? And that was it. We went, when we went to the pub. Um, oh, nice. Which was, uh, that was when it did get bizarre because meeting Tom Baker in a recording studio, we had, I mean, it was sort of how you imagined it, you know, a big, vast recording studio and we had all the lights down for when he turned up. So, you know, he was, and, uh, unbelievably professional, you know, there wasn't anything like, oh, oh, let me get my head into this. He was just, okay, they're the lyrics, no problem. And he just went in and did it, you know, the, you know, actors have that, you know, it's like, when you got th- you, you get thrown on stage at a concert with a big hangover from yesterday, you know you just do it. <laughs> and uh, but yeah, when when we got into the pub afterwards, he was um, he's incredibly recognisable as Tom Baker, you know. But nobody calls him Tom. Um, we walked into the pub and uh, we walked up to the bar and the barman said, "What are you having, doctor?" <laughs> <laughs> And he didn't, um, he didn't flinch and he, he said a pint of bitter and whatever these young lads are having. It was me and the guitarist were with him. And we had the pints and all like that. And when he turned around to us, he, he just said, Oh, everyone calls me doctor. Um, uh, and he said, I, you know, I go into a petrol station or a pub or uh, anywhere and they're like, Oh, hello doctor, you know, and everyone calls him the doctor or doctor. And he just said, I'm just used to it. And, uh, we stood talking to him for in the pub for like an hour, and I think by the end there was about fifty people all standing round, standing round listening to him telling jokes about his lawnmower and his graveyard, and <laughs> you know, and um, and uh, you know all sorts of uh, jokes about his own mortality and stuff. But um, I think you know, I think he quite enjoyed it. Secret. Well, put it this way, you know, he didn't he didn't not enjoy being the doctor. Yeah, you know, yeah. he 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 never said it was a curse, um, you know, like Keith Harris and Orville. Um, hmm. He didn't shirk away from it. He just accepted it. He was just the doctor, you know, even all those years later. Um, and that was uh, in 1998. But I guess after that, you know, he went on. So, you know, younger people would meet him and go, oh, it's that guy from Little Britain, you know, and he he, he had a whole other audience after that. And, uh, you know, so... Uh, I I think I can have conversations with people saying, why, Paul? You know, why do you want Tom Baker? 
and me saying, because his voice is amazing. Yeah. And uh, I think that was proved correctly because um, I think Little Britain was like what biggest comedy show of the noughties in on the BBC or whatever. Oh, it must have been, yeah. And of course, <coughs> his voice. Well, a large became part a big of it, part yeah. Of that. Yeah, big yeah, part yeah. Of that. Right, enough about Tom Baker, Paul. Let's talk about you. You've just brought something up about uh, about being a different person on stage from the person who's off stage. This is a uh, perhaps an interesting area to get into. Do you actually do you prefer playing live or recording in the studio? And of those two things, which of them was it? that was the thing that made you want to get into music in the first place? <coughs> well, for me, I was um, very much into recording things when I was a kid. I uh, I used to put tape recorders together and a Casio VL tone, which was a very early keyboard. And, um, <laughs> a Spanish... You've just described my teenage years, actually. <laughs> yeah, and a, and a Spanish classical guitar which i was rubbish on and um i just sat in my bedroom recording things and it it was one of my hobbies and became my major interest and um i started buying a magazine called sound on sound when i was about 13 i think something like that and i just became obsessed with synthesizers drum machines guitars records i would just study records um and that's how I got into it, really. I realised I had to have a band together and get some other people to do it with it. I had no concept of how you'd become a solo artist. And started doing it, really, and Manson grew out of that, really. Um, so what was the... For, I mean, obviously, I'll know this stuff, but for people who don't, how, how did Manson come together? Uh, Manson started with a group of uh, lads that I knew around Chester. Right. rehearsing in a rehearsal room on a Sunday. Um, I was from Liverpool. I was born in Liverpool, and the bass player was from Merseyside as well. So we just sort of uh, thought, where do all the bands rehearse in Liverpool? And we, you know, this is the pre-internet era. Aye. So we literally drove over to Liverpool and drove around, and I think we looked in the Yellow Pages rehearsal rooms, and, you know, we just went in and asked, you know, you know, can we get a rehearsal room? And uh, they said, oh, yeah, all the Liverpool bands rehearse here. Echo and the Bunnymen used to rehearse here. Cast, the new hot Britpop band of the day, yeah. who've now become like a classic band, rehearsed there. And there was another band there, Space, and other bands that had been signed. And they said there's amateur bands as well. And we just said, oh, well, you know, our only day off Sunday, can we book a four-hour rehearsal slot? And myself and the bass player with a drum machine went over there and uh that was the start of it really and we had a, a sort over this i don't know maybe six month period or something that we'd go over and try our amps out i bought a les paul guitar and he bought a fender bass and we'd we'd play over a, a drum machine and it was all my idea it was a continuation of me with my casio vl tone when i was 10 and i think everyone i ever knew i've always been roping into doing music with me. I, I still am now. I mean, I've, yeah. I've never, I've, my life's never changed, except I've just got slightly better equipment. And um, I'm still, should we say, annoying people, roping them all into making music with me. Um, and, um, <clears throat> and uh, yeah, that's how it started, really. Uh, 
we had a, a little bit of a revolving cast of different members who'd come in and maybe play. I remember one guy, Gary, came in and played drums, and we had a different drummer, and mainly different drummers, and then we had someone operating the drum machine, and eventually, I think, the lineup that we had on the weekend... Uh, the one weekend was the barman from our local pub, which was the guitar player, Dominic Chad, had turned up. God knows why he wanted to turn up. He just called up out of the blue and wanted to do it. <coughs> and um, we'd been going for a few, you know, a, you know, a little while, and the owner of the studio came in and said, you know, you guys turn up here all the time. You haven't got a manager or anything. And he just said, you know, you're going to get a record deal, don't you? And I said, Why? And he said, because of your songs. He said, that's what it's all about, songs. And he said, who writes your songs? And I said, me. And I think it was a song, Moronica, like an early B-side. Mm. He said, that's the one. He said, that, you're going to get a record deal off that. I'm going to bring someone up to see you. And I was like, really? Oh, wow. And then um, he said, turn up next week. And the next week we turned up, as usual, with our guitars. And we'd rent the amplifiers, plug our drum machine in and it head off, making its drum loop going, <laughs> and uh, we'd just start playing over it like a guitar band. Um, and uh, this scout came in, and he said, oh, I'm a scout from what was then known as Polygram Island Music Publishing, which is now Universal Music. Hmm. Um, very, very famous music industry guy called Alan Wills. He went on to be a famous guy in the music industry but he was a drummer in a band called top and like everyone in the music industry we're all failed artists is the old saying and um he was uh just scouting for universal and he came in and he said and, and he was just giggling he's going oh you know yeah i know you i know who you guys are you know you're like a new generation of bands you're influenced by all the new bands that are out and you know we were so wet behind the ears we just didn't have a clue and he was like you know, I'm going to bring an A&R guy up to see you. You know, there's an, I can see enough in you that I'm going to bring an A&R guy up. And he anyway, wasn't Alan wrong, Bull. was he? Well, he was sort of right in a way. You know, it was a bit of organised chaos. And, you know, obviously we went on to, you know, well, I guess we had a number one album and a stream of hits and what have you. And people sort of remember the band. So, you know, you know, I suppose he wasn't wrong in a way. Yeah, and Alan Wills, off the back of spotting bands like Manson, he got... The, uh, his own record label through, I think it was through Universal, and um, that went on to be Delta Sonic Records, and they signed the Coral and um, the Zootons and a few other things, and he had a, a great career of discovering as of discovering artists, you know, or bands or pop groups, whatever you want to call it, mm. and tragically died last year. He got knocked off his bike last year and uh, and died, but he was a oh. famous music industry figure and uh anyway the next <coughs> week a an a and r man higher up the food chain in the music industry come and that was mark lewis a guy from universal and and he said okay i'll put you in the studio and he said write me a song and i wrote him a song called naked twister which appeared on our first album and that was the next week and then um he put us in a studio instead of our usual rehearsal spot and we said, oh, we can't take a day off work, so we'll go in a, we'll have to go and record. So I wrote that song specially during that week. And we all went into the rehearsal room and, uh, he, uh, he, I think, you know, there's no internet or anything like that. I think the engineer sent the, we recorded it on the Sunday, sent it to him in the post on the Monday. 
And on the Tuesday, he called us up and he just said, um, pack your job in. I'm going to give you a record deal or a publishing deal, you know. Wow. And, uh, and that was it. I couldn't believe it, really. And and it, this it, was presumably before you'd even been on stage. Yep. It, we were just a recording project. Yeah. That's what I always say Manson was. It was an extension of what I did when I was a kid. Um, and ultimately that's how it split up. I mean, everyone, um, uh, the guitar player, Dominic Chad, didn't, he wanted to be some sort of live jamming band or something and, uh, yeah. and didn't want to be involved with, with it. So uh, that's how it split up in the end. It was all very bizarre, but, um, that's another story for, uh, another type of interview, but not for this interview. But, um, yeah, that's the, um, how the band came together and, and uh, what it was and and where it came from and we yeah we'd never even played a concert and there was a big music industry buzz and we had all A and R people coming to see us and listening to these songs Naked Twister and Maronica and all these things we were doing in rehearsal rooms and studios around Liverpool <laughs> and um, that's how it started you know it was an it was the old age of the music industry the golden age you know that doesn't happen now it's a, a very different industry well maybe it does you know who knows. Oh, yeah, well, I suppose the same sort of thing happens in a completely different kind of way, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, in a different way, yeah, you still get new things that are hot, you know, and um, you can have a, um, you know, a uh, all the A&R men or whatever going for it. You know, maybe it's a, an MP3 stream on, on a SoundCloud or someone who's at the <laughs> yeah. Brit school, you know, or many different ways of doing it, but. You know, the era of, you know, a, a group of young working class lads in their early 20s messing around in an old dilapidated warehouse <clears throat> in Liverpool. I don't know. Will it happen again? I don't know. Maybe it's happening now. Maybe there's another group of lads who haven't got a clue what they're doing in a warehouse in Liverpool somewhere. Well, but, you know, I think that naivety of what we were doing ultimately meant that we weren't professional enough to, professional enough to scale the heights. Right. You know, there was there was an implosion in Manson that uh, we didn't get the line up right and the people right in it. But, you know, it's remembered, you know, they've had a couple of conventions. They're going to do one again in 2017 in London. Um, <coughs> we're going to try and get someone Doctor Who related into it. So maybe you could come along. Ooh. But um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, they had some good guests at the last convention. So, you know, they're going to uh they're, uh, I think, you know, they'll be doing it in London, the next one. So, um, yeah, it's remembered. You know, it's a lot of people's favourite band or one of their favourite bands. Um, it's one of them bands, you know, it's, you know, that's, uh, you know, didn't become the top of its era. You know, it wasn't the Oasis or Pulp, but had its own incredibly strong fan base and it's passed it down now. And, you know, the amount of people I meet who, uh, you know, are still into it is, you know, mad really. And, you know, it's a, it'll uh, follow me around. It was only an element of my life. I would have liked it to have been a bigger element, but, you know, it'll be part of my life forever, really. Absolutely. But the, one of the odd things about it was you kind of turned up at the same time as Britpop and the whole sort of Blur versus Oasis thing and, and all that kind of stuff was going on at the time. And you, uh, Manson, were kind of subsumed into Britpop the way people thought about it you were a Britpop band inverted commas but you couldn't have been more different from most of them was that like a weird thing to be seen as part of this group of other bands that you really didn't seem to have an awful lot in common with 
you know, God, I, I don't think about it too much. You know, right. I'm, uh, I'm I'm wise enough to, you know, not get bothered by that at all. I mean, yeah. I think, you know, when the history of it's all written, you know, you know, they're going to look back at Britain. Radiohead will be a Britpop band, you know. Mm. I mean, you know, it's it's just it just means that era of music, doesn't it? So it doesn't bother me at all. But, you know, do I think we were like, you know, the Blue Tones or Shed 7 or Salad or whatever? No, I don't. <laughs> no. I don't I don't think we were a jangly guitar, bass and drums thing that was being influenced by the kinks and stuff like that, you know. I think we were influenced by all sorts of odd things. But um, well, for me, you are late period Beatles, post when they used to play live, mixed with the spirit of, I don't know, 1978. It's just slightly post-punk, I'd say. I don't know. Okay, that's... Do you know? Do you know? That's like the, the the like the best description of Manson I've ever heard. <laughs> if, if someone, could, you know, if I could choose, if someone said to me, "What can your legacy be?" and they go, "When the Beatles packed in and stopped being a pop group and started being, you know, um, I am the Walrus and Sgt. Yeah. Pepper's and Abbey Road and you know the spirit of punk rock added into it and mix it all together and put a band together, that's what I'd go for. So, uh, well, you know, thank you very much. But... That's what you sounded like, quite frankly. You have to remember that there's a lot of there was like a dark sense of humour in Manson as well. Yeah. So he would do things like tax loss, which were obviously taking the Mickey out of the Beatles as well, and the Osmonds and all sorts of lyrical references in it. And that's because we were a studio project, so we didn't shy away from di- from doing ridiculous things, but for somehow we got away with it, you know. Yeah. But um, you know, I said I said a really nice description of you. Yeah, I mean, you know, um, that that you've said, I couldn't I couldn't have picked a better description of myself better than that which is (laughs) you know a you know essentially a guitar band but you know something a bit more creative with a bit of punk energy into it you know i would like to think of it like that you know i of course the majority of it i I had my own way of writing songs so things like naked twister or you who do you hate closer business wide open space or that they had that melodic thread running through them which was my thing but you know, I'd always try and, you know, write other types of songs as well, you know, and, um, you know, always looking for different influences to try and expand out from that one thing, really, because <coughs> I wouldn't have been able to plow through writing a hundred songs for a band. It'll, it'll all be the same, you know. Yeah. And, um, I think we all ran out of steam in the end, you know, and I think that everyone went insane in the end. Well, I think literally some members actually did technically go insane. <laughs> but, um, but, um, you know, it was a crazy band. It was a crazy band, but yeah, you're you're right. You know, post touring Beatles was a studio project. Manson was a studio project, uh, but we're still a band. You know, we still went out and played as a band. And uh, I can um, imagine going out and playing live as a band when, as you say, you're kind of primarily a studio project. I should imagine. I, I don't suppose you'd know, but I should imagine the pressures on you when you are playing live are quite different then from what you might have with a different kind of a band. Yeah, I mean, I don't think you know we, you know, um, we never got it together enough. There's reasons for you know. I don't want to go into it on here, but we never got it yeah, together yeah. enough to have our own owned rehearsal space where we could all work in in a space and work together and bring it up to the level where we could recreate the records live. You know, the Beatles couldn't do it. Well, they say that's why they packed in playing live, but, you know, they couldn't do it. And they went and did the Get Back project, which became the Let It Be album and played on the roof where it all went back to trying to be a proper live band again. And, you know, we did, you know, we've done that. You know, we've done stuff like that. And, you know, we couldn't, we couldn't get it right. We couldn't get things 
Right, but I mean, we have there was the, the technology was available to do it, you know, running drum loops and tapes and all like that. And would I like to say we didn't want to do it? I think probably the real answer is we didn't get it together enough, you know. So yeah. we just went out and played as a live band. So when you listen to something like Tax Loss on the record, it's an amalgamation of synthesizers and drum loops and ideas and lyrics from the Osmond and obviously, you know, Beatle references and Parlophone references. And, you know, it was a, you know, a psychedelic you know, yeah, yeah. work of art or just a rip off of the Beatles. I don't, I don't know. I know what I think it is, but you know, it's, um, you know, when we played it live, we just did like a punk rock version of it. We did like a live version of it. We just did versions of things, but you know, we could play well enough where the shows were really exciting and really live. We didn't replicate the records exactly. <clears throat> no, yeah. I don't know whether that's a good or a bad thing, but that's how it panned out. You know, there wasn't, um, but to my mind, you know, if I'm listening to a record, I don't want to hear what I've seen on stage. I want to hear something different. And when I go and see a band, I don't want to hear the record I've got in my collection at home. I want to hear something different. You know, I want the two experiences to be two different things. So what you're describing would be exactly the way I would have gone about it myself, you know? Yeah, maybe, you know, I mean, like the Stone Roses do Fool's Gold now, which was all drum loops and, you know, samplers and computers and that, but they just yeah. play it live now, you know. I, I mean, I, I saw them, the video of them doing it at Heaton Park, and it was amazing, you know, it went on for 10 minutes, and, but it wasn't like the record, and the record was one of my favourite records ever, you know, that single, but um, it's... Um, you know, uh, yeah, that, you know, that's what it was, that's what happened in Manson, it's just evolved like that and um i you know uh, you know um we couldn't get it together enough to um take it to another level take it to the arena level or to take it to the stadium level it would have been possible if we'd have worked together but unfortunately we didn't work together so well this is kind of what the record company were trying to get you to do with the third album isn't it <clears throat> what be more of a th- sorry go on what happened with the third album is we did the second album, and the second album's like it is because I didn't write songs going into it because of all personal problems and the animosities that was going on in the band. Yeah. And so I came into the album in a dark place, and we made it up at the studio. Um, so it became what it was, and obviously it was very, very odd at the height of Britpop. Um, and although it was like when in the charts at number six or whatever, it was deemed a failure at the time because it went in the band... charts at number six. I'm sorry, I can't let that pass. I know, yeah, I know, yeah, <laughs> and uh, so it's odd, isn't it? But um, um, you know, it's um, you know, every, you know, we were on a major label and you had to be number one, and so it was taken out of my hands. So the third album was a reaction to the second album. Yeah, um, and we got it all wrong. Um, Do you know what though? I absolutely adore the third album. Over the well, what's happened with that one is odd because over the passage of time, the fashion in music production has changed. So um, the producer of that album, Hugh Padgham, produced uh, the Big Police albums. You know, Every Breath You Take, Phil Collins, yeah. a lot of big eighty stuff. He did some really cool stuff as well. He did one of Gabriel's albums, and you know that track Intruder was at Gabriel three. <laughs> and um, he did bits on the Hounds of Love, Kate Bush, but Hugh Padgham it was, you know, the, one of the biggest 80s producers, you know, he produced, you know, along with like, you know, Nile Rogers, and, um, you know, he was, you know, one of the biggest producers in the world at the time, and um, 
we got together with him and whether it was the right or wrong thing, we produced that album. We had a bit of an 80s thing in our sound as well. And um, he made that album and it was, you know, it was, it, that wasn't of its time really. It wasn't of any time, but what's happened now is that that sound is very now, you know, yeah. you know, whether it's Taylor Swift or everything, everything, or whether it's Beck's new single, there's a sound and, and somehow that album, Little Kicks, is sort of, had a resurgence from the dead. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> at, at, um, you know, at the time the fans hated it. It was a commercial disaster, a massive disaster. But I think there's a couple of tracks that I really genuinely don't like, but I think there's a couple of songs on there that are amongst my best that I ever wrote. I think Comes As No Surprise. Yeah. Is one of best, one of my best songs. And I think Until the Next Life is I was technically. Just gonna say. Technically, that's the best song I ever wrote. It took me two weeks to write that song, just sitting down, just trying every single chord. And I think technically the way the vocal melody goes into the chorus and, and, um, the middle eight, I think that, you know, I think that along with keep telling myself off kleptomania, but I think until the next life, probably technically the best one I ever did. Um, it, it's not a great recording because it was basically just a demo, uh, that was put out and Hugh just sort of brought it up in the studio, but, um, <clears throat> I think, you know, we were looking for universal songs with universal lyrics and, you know, we're a product of the music industry, but, you know, out of the music industry comes great art or great songs or whatever you want to call it. But that was one of the best songs I ever wrote and that's on there. So, you know, and I can only disappoint you was pretty decent. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. Oh, look, the, I, I like Fool and Electric Man. What can yeah, I say? Yeah, see, I don't like them, you see. So no, I, don't like I know. Them. <laughs> you know, they've got, they've got very interesting stories behind them, them two songs. But, I mean, I've gone into them a million times. But, yeah, um, yeah. <coughs> Fool was my um, artistic comment on generic pop songs. Well, it's a long story. and, and Which is what you were being asked to write. Yeah, which is which is sort of why I opened with the ah. Uh, I was I was trying to make a statement, <laughs> but anyway, it's a long story. But um, yeah. but um, and then Electric Man, we were trying to do tax. It was like the tax loss of the album. It was a parody of David Bowie, but that didn't work out really. Um, it, it but maybe it was that it wasn't Hugh's fault in the production. It just wasn't scrappy enough. It wasn't sarcastic enough. It's a long story. What what my thought process was for that for them tracks but uh, I, th- I think from i think probably at the time being an angry young man my um i probably had to produce myself for it to make any sense yeah, yeah. but as i say out of it you know come some good songs and i can only disappoint you was covered by blood orange last year De- uh, dev haynes a uh, big new york producer who's a big manson fan and, and he's done an r&b version of it which he- is, you know really interesting and um wow well i didn't you know, know that i shall have to look that out yeah, if you if you you know if you're on Facebook or wherever you are, look for Blood Orange, um, is the name of the band or Dev Haynes, Devonte Haynes. You can mm. find him on Twitter or you can find Blood Orange on Facebook. <clears throat> and his last album, Cupid Deluxe, um, there's a cover of I Can Only Disappoint You on there and uh, a uh, an R and B version. Very interesting it is to do. Wow. You know, and uh, never did I think he would be able to do it, but he did. And uh, Dev's over in New York producing his uh, lots of different acts over there and doing his own stuff. He's just had a single out recently, which was which was brilliant actually. I just saw his video the other day, and. Um, 
so yeah, they're, they're, you know, they're all over the place, these Manson fans. I, you know, I never thought I'd be here all these years later talking about it. I thought when, especially when the band ended, it imploded in a typical rock and roll disaster. Lots of acrimony and, you know, minor court cases and all this malarkey and all. I, I you know, I just thought, I, I walked away from it and had a long, hard think about, I tried to discover what was my, why I was doing it. Yeah. You know, why Why was I doing it? Did I, was I just a narcissistic individual trying to be a pop star? And I discovered that what I wanted to do <coughs> was go... I went right back to the start with a karaoke machine, an Alba tape recorder, a Spanish classical guitar, and a Casio Vialto, which was putting tracks together. So that's what <laughs> I went back to doing. I, I, by that, you know, by the end of it, all the narcissism went. I couldn't care less about being a pop star. I just, I, I'm happy to laugh at the whole thing. And I was happy to carry on with whatever dignity you can, can come out of being in a Britpop band with <laughs> and carry on making tracks. You know, I did some stuff with Skin from Skunk and Nancy. I did um, I worked with a band called The Joy Formidable who went on to support the Foo Fighters at Madison Square Garden and Paul McCartney at the Millennium Stadium Cardiff. And they did all sorts of, uh, they did really well in the rock world. And then I went on to, I did all sorts of bits and bobs behind the scenes and producing, to, basically, yeah. Yeah, producing and writing with other people as well. And I always wanted to have, I'd always work from home. I'd always have my studio at home and I, I, I'd always wanted Manson to have its own studio in Chester where we could all meet together and work, but it never happened. It, yeah. it wasn't, it wasn't the will of the others, should we say. And, um, they wanted different things, and um, I wanted to have my own studio. So <clears throat> coming back to Little Kicks, Hugh Padgham had a big complex, complex as a warehouse in Acton. And so I moved my studio in there, um, which is sort of commonly known as the kitchen, because it was in the kitchen. And um, so, yeah, it's a production room with, like, a control room, and it had a uh, – it was wired into a live area, and I set up there, and <clears throat> that was in the late noughties, and – and did that really, and 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 I, instead of you know having my fat Elvis period or turning into Brian Wilson trying to rediscover who I was by sitting in a sandpit playing nursery rhymes, I you know I didn't <laughs> want to go insane being you know an ex you know rock star or whatever. So I thought I'm going to have a studio. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to structure my life around putting tracks together in a studio. So I had all my bits and bobs of old tracks and. Went in there, did a few projects with other people, and then rented my studio out to other artists. And had loads of interesting people coming in. Frank Ocean came in for a few weeks, and Savages, Pixie Lot. Um, had a great Motown songwriter, uh, Leon Ware. Look him up, Leon Ware, W-A-R-E. Right. Amazing character came in and wrote a song on my rickety old piano. And um, <laughs> You know, all sorts of people were coming in and out, you know, other producers and artists. And, and, uh, I just, you know, I just loved having my studio. To me, it's the same. <clears throat> it's weird. I was having a, the guy who's mixing my album, P Dub, very, very, uh, respected, uh, mixer in the music industry is, uh, I have this conversation with him and, and he puts it as the excitement of being in music when he was 12. That's what he wants to still keep going with now. And I'm just like, oh, I want to still, stay on my summer holidays sitting in with with my tape recorders doing it again and we you, you try and find why you're doing it you know what and um 
you know, I managed to find that by having my own studio. And so it didn't bother me that, you know, Frank Ocean was in playing the piano for days on end. And I just, you know, go and do other things or just potter around. It didn't bother me if I came in one day and I was installing software on my computer or, you know, installing a new valve compressor and comparing the sound to an optical compressor or whatever. You know, it's it's all an extension of the same thing or it didn't bother me if like there was you know a publishers or a record company sent a new artist in to write a song with me and try out writing a song i tried co-writing as a profession with various different people and you know i just went in there and i had a, a space a place to just be musical and do it <clears throat> and um you know because i wasn't on the treadmill of being in a pop group you're going to remember manson sort of remembered now as a sort of a left field you know band you know left field art band or whatever art school band i mean i did a lecture in a university recently and they described me as a product a left you know a product of the art school system and i you know i was in a way i went to art school as a working class lad who went to art school and you know <laughs> yeah. so were lots lots of people you know pete townsend john lennon jarvis cocker i didn't think of it like that i just thought i was having a skive until i could get a record deal and they probably all were you know but you know the art school did produce a lot of people and I ended up going from a normal working class background to, you know, sitting around, you know, with other artistic left field creative people in in a warehouse in Acton, you know, um, discussing guitar tones and sounds and theorizing why you're doing music. And there was lots of other people in the building, you know, and it was a real creative hub. Um, one of one guy at Depeche Mode, the new guy, um, um, Pete Gordino, who replaced Alan Wilder, had his production room in there. And there was a um, Matt Prime, who was a, a, a you know a famous songwriter in the in the industry, had his room in there. And um, you know you'd be in every day, and you'd sit and you'd talk and theorise, and you know everyone got on well. And Hugh Padgham was in there. There was another producer in there, Chris Porter, who'd produced or engineered all George Michael's stuff, you know, and great stuff. And I'd sit with him and say, you know, I love that album, Faith. That's amazing. And he'd tell me all how George did it and all like that. And you know, it's a, uh, it's a, you know, it was, a, it was really interesting being on that side of the industry. Um, <clears throat> you know, with the the acts, if you like the the performers, they call them coming in because I was a performer once, and um, oh, I you were getting every... to see it from the other side, as it were. I did completely see it from the other side, and uh, I I thought, you know, I'm gonna find someone, you know, uh, you know, I didn't want to work with a performer or, or an actor, as such I wanted to work with an artist, and um, you know, so eventually I worked with all sorts of different types of people, and eventually. My world collided with uh, a girl called Catherine Ann Davis from Aylesbury, who became my main project that I did at my studio over the previous couple of years. And everything else sort of fell by the wayside. I'd done other writing with other guys and, you know, a band. I wrote, wrote with a couple of bands and a couple of pop singers and had the studio rented out. Let people, you know, but just having the studio was my passion. That was my hobby. It was my thing. It was, it was my, it was when I was 11 and I got a tape recorder. It was that. It was an extension of that. I, you know, I wasn't a lad who was financed going through doing a music degree in, you know, sound acoustics. And I wasn't someone who'd been through the Brit school. I wasn't someone who was an apprentice at Abbey Road or anything. I was 
a working class lad who that was my hobby passion whatever you want to do it's from when i was 10 it wasn't a career it is beyond a career it's just it's beyond it's my life now i don't have any way out of it i don't have any other thing that i wake up and i you know do my bits and bobs that you have to do in the morning and that's what i do i i can't i i you know i don't know why other than i've always done it yeah yeah you know that's it it's what you know you can't i never ever wake up and think I've got to do music. It's never, it, you know. I remember I did an interview with Paul McCartney. If you Google my name and Paul McCartney's name, in the interview he says, "I never go to work. I always play music, and that's how I remember it." <clears throat> everyone who does music, it's I, I can't tell you. Everyone has a different motivation, but it's it's not a job. Um, it it it's beyond a passion. Um, it's you know, it's not a career. Um, I, I, I just describe it as my hobby that I've done from when I was 10. It's what I do. I do it every day. When I don't do it, I get really ratty. You know, when I've got to go out and go into London and do something and this, that and the other, or I've got other commitments, you know, I'm always thinking about, right, when I get back in the studio, when I get back in the studio, I've got to do this, I've got to do that. And I'll just be forever doing it, which means, you know, I've accumulated dozens and dozens of songs and tracks and ideas which you know which are going to form a solo album of mine now you know bizarrely i never thought i'd be doing that but that's just where my career has led me you know my career of soldering valve compressors or you know <laughs> making tea for frank ocean or whatever you know it's just all or being a singer in a Britpop band it's all just a career in music it doesn't bother me i don't ever think I don't ever think, oh, I was a big time singer and now I'm running a studio or I'm in a studio. It's the same thing. It's absolutely the same thing. So, you know, bizarrely, it's going to lead me right back to square one, which is going to be a singer again, you know. Well, this is well. you mentioned Catherine a, a few minutes ago and you've just mentioned the solo album. And really, you can't talk about either of these things without talking about the other one, from what I gather. How... how Let's talk about Catherine for a second. How did you find Catherine and how did that come about? Okay, well, um, Catherine was a an artist. I was, um, you know, record companies was, you know, they were, you know, periodically, not every day you get the phone ringing off, but periodically every couple of weeks, months, whatever, you know, because I know I'm, I'm in London, I'm in the music industry. I don't know everyone in the music industry, but there's, you know, circles of people who know yeah. each other and you get emails and calls. Oh, do you want to work with this person? And, you know, <coughs> it's, it's odd how it happens. Like a couple of years ago, a friend of mine called up and goes, there's this band, Catfish in the Bottle Men. Do you want to produce them? And then I'd speak to the singer and I'm like, oh, I'll write with you. And he's like, no, no, I want, I just want you to produce me. And I go, oh, well, I want to write, really, okay. And then 18 months later, oh, wow, look, there they are. There they are, <laughs> yeah. Catfish in the Bottle Man, Bricks of the Academy. And it's just, things happen, and, you know, you don't, you, you know, so uh, I missed out on doing that, but I ended up doing a solo album and doing the Anchoress, and all sorts of odd things happened. So Catherine was a an artist who was, um, she wanted to make it in music, and but she wanted to you know do it on her own terms and do her own thing and she was uh i think she was on youtube she did a video of herself on youtube and it had become you know a lot of i think producers and <coughs> writers and a and r people she'd come into people's orbit and um i was one of quite a few people who just emailed her on her website and said i really like that track you've done it was a track that's going to be on her album called long year 
And um, she emailed me back and she said, oh, hello, yeah, I'm, you know, I think she said, my boyfriend's favourite album, Six. So um, <laughs> I'll work with you. And um, I did some demos with her and she went off and worked with Bernard Butler, um, X of Suede with uh, Ed Harcourt, Nick and Swahali, all sorts of different people. And eventually it fell to me to co-produce her debut album with her. So amongst doing her other <clears throat> lines of things that she does in her music life, musical life, like be, being uh, a member of Simple Minds and doing all her uh, collaborations and music lecturing at BIM and all these different things that she does, she came and made her debut album with me at my studio, The Kitchen, and... Um, well, this is this is something that the pair of you kind of wrote together, from what I gather. No, initially it was all Catherine's writing. She right. was writing it, and I was just producing it. <coughs> so it was a very, you know, it wasn't exactly a defined lines, but she was writing her album, and I was the producer. But as it went on, and um, she would come in like once a week, sometimes not for a couple of weeks, and then she'd come in twice a week, and then... Eventually, um, she got a residency. How, how the writing side of it came along, she got a residency at the South Bank Centre as an artist in residence, like very prestigious for a, wow. you know, a young up and coming singer songwriter. And, and she called me up and said, you know, I've got this massive writing room at the South Bank Centre. Do you want to come, come and write some songs with me and utilize it? And we went there and, and we wrote two days and we wrote two songs. Neither of them are going to be on a debut album, but they're still in our massive archive of, ideas that we've written and songs we produced um you know we got lots of things that we played as a band that won't make the album but you know hopefully uh, you know they'll all see the light of day one day and we wrote these things and um <clears throat> then Catherine, uh, i think we were putting the album together and and nothing came of the first two writing sessions but she was living in blackheath and had a, a grand piano in her living room and i came over one day and we were um editing songs we'd recorded at my studio at acting it at uh, the kitchen and um i think i can't remember how it happened but she just said should we write a song should we write another song and we just wrote a song there and then and that was a song called what goes around which was the debut anchoress single yeah i think it was a great song she just came up with this chord sequence and i just sat behind Catherine with an acoustic guitar and she's playing on the baby grand and she just led it and it just came and it just came and after that, we both went, oh, wow, we had something there. And I think the next day we just finished the lyrics off. But we just did it in one session and finished the lyrics the next day. And we had something. And I said, I, you know, I genuinely think that's really good, that Catherine. And she said, oh, let's do another one. And we just kept going. And we formed a songwriting partnership. But I think we needed to do the first two failures of song. Not failures, because they're still knocking around. They might find the light of day. But they weren't. You know, we didn't we didn't buzz off them. There was yeah. a struggle. Whereas what goes around, it was like, oh wow, wow, wow. You know, and that went. And after a couple of hours, we had the whole thing. Sometimes <coughs> when you're working on something, it takes a while to sort of get into the process of it. But when you do, it just kind of clicks, doesn't it? Yeah, sometimes it does, and sometimes it doesn't. There's there's no way of um, yeah of uh, knowing it. I think the bit. I I, I I mean, I was talking to Catherine about this. I think the biggest thing is, first of all, um, know someone well enough that you can make a buffoon of yourself with them. Yeah. So, you know, I can strum around chords that go wrong and, you know, oh, oh no, oh, and try that. And, and once that barrier's down, you know, like, and like going back to Tom Baker, you know, an actor, like Tom Baker could just walk in and go, you know, you know, 
just walk into a studio with people he's never met before, pick up a lyric sheet and go from behind closed eyes, you know, <laughs> and, you know, did witness to a murder or whatever and go, and then just go, Oh, is that okay? Cheers guy. You know, you know, don't be a shrinking violet when it comes to music being, you know, do it, believe it. I instilled a belief in myself many years ago that I, you know, I just genuinely believe in, um, in doing it. Um, <clears throat> yeah. I can theorize it. I mean, I think, um, pop music, the pop record, I don't think the song or the production or the arrangement or the pop group, I think the pop record, as in, you know, Jailhouse Rock on a piece of seven-inch vinyl, will be remembered in hundreds of years' time as the the de facto art form of the 20th century. And yeah. maybe, you know, it's, um, you know, it'll probably surpass all other art forms. I think it'll be remembered as the top. We just think of it as a throwaway piece of plastic at the minute. We don't get it, but we will in the future. Yes. Um, I think it's something that genuinely, genuinely, no doubt, changed the course of human history. You know, it went from, I'm not saying it was exactly this, but, you know, teenagers in the north of England having cloth caps and going out at 14 to work in a coal mine to empowering you, Elvis Presley and the Beatles, giving you power to dress in the finest clothes and get on a scooter and go to a disco and be a someone when you were a teenager and have a life and aspire to. And it changed culture. It literally changed the world. I mean, I genuinely believe that the pop record changed the world. People saw that picture of Elvis Presley on the cover of his album. They saw the Beatles on TV. They <clears throat> dressed like them. They wanted to be them, but it wasn't that it's the, the, the best of music transcends music and yes. it becomes and, and, and it and, and it dominates the culture it shapes the culture the last time we saw it in our country was the 90s that's why we're talking now because manson was part of a giant movement it was a cultural movement where you know you would see jokes of it on the harry enfield show which was a satirical tv show and you'd see harry enfield and his mate perry when they'd wear adidas track suits and call everyone our kid and then everyone in the living room at home watching it would laugh because they all know what it was it was yeah. oasis it, it transcended the songs you know those people who didn't even know the oasis songs knew who they were they knew the clothes, they knew the catchphrases, you know, in the 60s it was collarless jackets and Chelsea boots and everything was gear and when music becomes like that and it, and it turns into fashion well, and the way, and the way you talk. Yeah. When was it, the last it, time, you know, who was going to be number one was, you know, one of the lead stories <coughs> on the six o'clock news? Yeah, I mean, th you know, this last week it was Adele. She made the news. Yeah, she's, yeah, you know, yeah. She's, she, Adele is a pop star. You know, she's a product of the Brit school, and um, so she's trained to sing, and and uh, she is the very professional side of the best of the British music industry, and it's huge. You yeah. know, it, it's not cultural. You know, there's not uh, people going to go round using Adele catchphrases no. and dressing like Adele, and you go down the pub and there's like 20 girls all dressed like Adele, and then, you know, and all like that. She she is just the pinnacle, a huge pop star, huge. Yeah. It, she's not a cultural movement. You know, no. um, Britpop or the 90s was a, a giant cultural movement. It was a huge, it was, it, would be, it was photography, it was fashion, it was music, it was attitude. You know, there's many different things that came, you know, Ladette culture and all these other things. They'll all <laughs> yes. be... You know, or, you know, um, you know, they'll all be grouped into one giant, you know, um, uh, you know, 
um, well, yeah, the yeah. thing when people look back at them as a, as a period in time. And the 60s was that too. You know, the 60s was an extension of Elvis Presley in the 50s, and it just exploded. <clears throat> um, you know, the 90s was too, you know, and, and, and we became part of it, only a small part of it. But, um, you know, it seems that, that our little part of it grows with time, and I, I think that's probably because our band made a couple of good records and imploded relatively quickly and became a cult band with their yeah. conventions about and stuff like that. So I'm here talking to you because people like all the aspects of it because – you know, I've, you know, I, I would say, oh, I like Doctor Who, and in 1997, everyone would laugh at you. Well, no one laughs at you now. It's an institution, and Tom Baker's like a national hero, and it's like, but we, we didn't care about anything like that. I mean, I would do interviews where I, they would say, what, who are your musical influences? And I'd go, ABBA. <laughs> like, you couldn't say that, at, you know, at the height of Britpop. It had to be the Who and the Jam. But I didn't care about that. I just, you know, I, you know what I think it was. I just don't think I was very cool. I think, you know, I think I, I think the portrayal of, you know, the stage persona of myself, or the fact that we didn't do that many TV interviews or whatever, you know, and we were such an odd left field art school band, I guess, and the fact that we, you know, just snuck into that pop world because we were the pop music of the day. You know, we'd go and see the UK and Victoria Beckham would be in the next dressing room to us. You know, and it's really odd to to. <clears throat> to see that now because the pop music of today is the X factor, you know, they're all yeah, the same. Yeah. It, it, it's an, they are the music industry. You know, we were, you know, God knows how we got into it. You know, we were just, a, you know, we just fluked our way into it, but God, oh my God, when we got into it, we give it everything, you know, and uh, or we did for a short time before it imploded. But, you know, it's a very, you know, it's a very homogenized industry now. And, you know, Manson's a, Odd footnote in the entirety of the music industry. Very odd footnote in the entirety of it, of, of it all. But you know, there was there was a reality to Manson. There was fake elements to it as well. But there was, a, you know, it was real. You know, we, we you know we were not a manufactured band, other than manufacturing it ourselves. Yes, yes. Um, you know, we were, um, you know, we were, you know, you know, working class lads. Some of us from council estates, and you know. We had nowhere to go on a Sunday. We, you know, that we, you know, we were the real deal in that respect. And, you know, I did go to art school and was, you know, obsessed with music from an early age. And if you're real about it, you know, um, I, you know, I could quite happily talk about it forever. And I well, have my justifications, you know. And uh, like I said before, it's the punk mentality with the yeah, sort of Beatles artistry. <clears throat> You know what? There was a, there was a big element of punk in Manson. I, I don't think we knew it at the start. The the rock element, the real rock element, came from a we used to go as a group of friends. We used to go to a rock club called the Tiv, in right. um, on a Saturday night in North Wales. Um, we'd go to Rock Night and they'd play um, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Nine Inch Nails. Uh, and uh, and uh, Metallica, you know, and um, uh, I, I loved rock music. I was a real big rock fan, and, and before Manson got together, I bought Soundgarden, and it was the riffs, uh, super unknown Soundgarden, and, and um, the heaviness, of, and that was massively impressive to me. But my, you know, my, my favourite artist of all time was Prince, and I loved Prince, and and uh, yeah, of course the Beatles, you know, massively, massively yeah. influential on Manson, and uh, I always say, you know. Um, I wanted to be the Beatles. I wanted to be as big as the Beatles, but in the end, we weren't even as big as the Ruttles, which, <laughs> you know, but, but, uh, you know, but I want that written on my gravestone. But, um, 
But yeah, you know, yeah, the, you know, when I look back now, the first two albums, and maybe the third one now, you know, you know, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm getting to the point where I can accept it, you know, um, it's, um, it's to do with the people involved. It's always to do with people. Everyone says it's musical differences. It's ne- it never is. It's to do with people. It's to do with people. And then everyone says, oh, it was over money or publishing or, you know, you didn't have any ideas or songs and all that. And it's, it's to do with people. You get the right mix of people who want to do it and are all happy in their jobs and you can achieve something. With Manson, that didn't happen. Um, with the mm. Anchoress, with the, with the Anchoress project I did with Catherine, that did happen, so we got it done, you know, so... Um, well, back on that, then, that album is out on the 16th of January, is that... That's right, yeah, the yeah. Anchoress album. Yeah. Confessions of a Romance Novelist, a conceptual album about a theoretical romance novelist writing, um, I don't know the exact concept of it, but it's set in the 1980s, anyway. Right. So, well, so, you know all about concept albums... Yeah, well, I did a couple of them. Yeah, <laughs> I, I did a couple of them in the nineties. I think I think Attack of the Great Lantern was the only number one concept album of the nineties in the UK. I think wouldn't no surprise me. Yeah, no one's cottoned onto that one, but they will eventually. <clears throat> but, but that's um, a very interesting way to work. In that it's kind of, especially at the start, as a first album to do a concept album allows you to put yourself into other people, so you don't need to make it too autobiographical, which might be a bit scary as a, a first project. Do you know what I mean when I say that? Um, yeah, that's very perceptive. I mean, I, I, you know, a, a lot of the time I was maybe too introverted to uh, write really heartfelt lyrics. Yeah. Um, I think there's a little element where I was trying to be clever and I was very influenced by that period of the Beatles, you know, I am the Eggman, I am the Walrus and yes. all that, you know, the, the, but that came from, um, the Goon Show and, and, um, and latterly Monty Pythons as well, whereas John Lennon was influenced by all that very British sense of humour <coughs> and the radio plays and stuff. So there was, a, a, you know, a common thread there and, um, but yeah, everything had a meaning, so I would wrap it up in characters and odd <laughs> lyrical things. I mean, I can't put myself back in that mental place where I was when I did it. I can't do it. I mean, I'm working on an album now, and the whole lyrical side of it is completely different. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't write a song about a watermelon or an egg or a vicar or anything now. But I did do it. You know, um, and. Um, in a way, it allows you to it, be yeah, braver, doesn't it? Because by putting yourself into sort of the shoes of other people, yeah, you, know, there, there you can the, really push yourself out there. There was definitely an element of hiding emotions. There was definitely mm. an element of that, you know, burying feelings and emotions beneath odd lyrics and, and taking it out of the concept of having to write it from yourself, from the heart. Although everything I ever did, you know, however fake or artistic it was, come from the heart and there was a reason for it. Well, that's always the way. Even when you put yourself into the third person, it still comes out of you. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, you know, you could look at, as I say, something like ABBA, you know, when they did it, they were just a pop group, you know, when 1970, well, when they won Eurovision with Waterloo, it was just a glam rock song. And then when they yeah. did Dancing Queen, they were copying disco. And then when the 80s sound come out, they were doing Super Trooper, you know, they were, you know, they weren't shy of following the fashions and nicking a few ideas and all like that. But they will be viewed historically as one of the, you know, greatest pop bands of all time, you mm. know. Uh, with 
you know, some of the, the best collections of singles that are second to none to anyone, you know. So, um. Well, Madonna's <coughs> exactly the same. She does what other people are doing, but she yeah. tends to do it so well that, you know, she, she gets remembered for it. Yeah, you know, that's absolutely the essence of staying at the top of, um, you know, music is to, um, or it has been for a long time, which is yeah. to, you know, you know, or as David Bowie calls himself, you know, with a chameleon and jump from one thing to another and, yeah. you know, try and keep abreast of fashions and, and all of that. I think my thing in Manson was to try and not be fashionable, which <laughs> that was just, I, I just had a very, such a skewed view of putting tracks together and, and so I split it all up in my head into like, you know, inspiration songs, I used to call them, which is songs and then idea tracks and riff songs and chords. You know, and in the end, I'd end up sitting cross-legged in the same place on the floor as where I write wide open space to try and write another one. And it's just mad, <laughs> you know, in the end, you just drive yourself mad doing it. I think I did in the end, but... Um, <laughs> Well, let's, let's, you've mentioned it a couple of times. Solo album. Is that going to be out next year? Yeah, that's what I'm working on now. You know, I mean, I finished, um, working with, uh, Catherine last year on the Anchoress album and she <clears throat> has been off literally this year with Simple Minds touring all over the world, um, with them as their featured live artist. I went to see him at the O2 the other night and she was great. And she's been put, she put out her first single, then an EP and then, um she's her album's on pre-order now you know if you want cd yeah, or yeah. you know itunes or whatever just look up the anchor s um and you can um you can get that if you're that way inclined um i can't say there's much doctor who on there is there <laughs> as much doctor who influence other than i'm on there and um well um, i will play a short sample of one of the songs at the end of the podcast oh great yeah that's good yeah and then so, you know people she, get a bit of an idea yeah yeah, so she went off and did that, and um, and uh, I I think we put the first single out, What Goes Around, and I, uh, I had a record company call me up and said, came over and said, uh, we drew a list of people we'd like to work with, and you were at the top, and I, I said, are you mad? And they said, no, we're a, a post-progressive label, and we have, you know, we were really into your first two albums, and we thought you were different in the time, and we really, really want to work with you, and then as it went on with the Anchoress album, <clears throat> and then the, because I stuck my neck out and did some interviews with her, then the Manson fans all come out, and I think there's five or six thousand of them now, all active daily on a Facebook page. Yeah. And they run a Manson website. If you go on Google and key Manson in, you can find the website, and they report the news on it every day. And believe it or not, <laughs> there is Manson news that goes on, Manson related. This will be on it, you know, at some yeah, broadcast. Yeah. The people who run the Manson website and they do merchandise and they do their websites and their Facebook groups and, and, um, I, I'm, I'm positive about it all. I wasn't for many years, you know, it was, uh, it was a, um, you know, I've seen a documentary about the Sex Pistols and that ended all horribly and Manson ended up horribly, but I just put myself in a mindset where I just think it was a part of my life. And uh, so I'm going to support all the people who who liked it. And there's a lot of people out there who were teenagers, and it was their favourite part band. They would follow us on tour. It gave them a lot of pleasure. Um, it, it was a lot more for a lot of people than you know. It, it, it meant a lot to a lot of people. Um, yes. And so well, I'm positive. I'm about one it. Some of members are, some <laughs> members are, but I, but I am, you know. So you know. Well, I mean, doing this thing, I mean. Uh, you presumably didn't plan it to go this way, but doing this thing where the Anchorus album comes out first and then probably a few months later yours will come out afterwards, 
that's almost like you sort of accidentally ended up testing the water for yourself before the solo one comes out and who knows that might be the right way to do it and that might really give you a taste sort of put yourself back out there again well i I mean yeah i mean i never ever thought i'd do a solo album so you know it's completely by accident not by design but obviously just by the mere fact that when Catherine came out she wasn't a known artist and this day and age of the internet um there's a sea of music out there you know doesn't mean you can get anywhere anyone can put a track out on a soundcloud or on a website or whatever so um i said I'll do a few interviews for you and not for her, but I did a few interviews and I stuck my neck out. That's how I ended up becoming a solo, doing a solo album. It was, um, um, Catherine became successful. She got, uh, you know, she landed a job as a touring member of Simple Minds and she's traveled the world. She headlined the Billboard Awards in Las Vegas in front of Taylor Swift and Ed Sheeran. She played the O2 Arena doing a solo slot the other night. I'm really proud of her. She's got her album out there. You know, she's not pop, pop act in terms of you know being you know you know and that but you know she's a real artist and yeah, yeah. she's made a, a, a work of art her album is and i co-produced it with with her and we spent a lot of time and theorizing and playing it and you know it's a work of art and it's going to come out in january and um, well, the two singles uh you know they're, they're they're i wouldn't say that they were remotely difficult they're, they're, they're pop songs <laughs> I mean, yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, but there's nothing wrong with pop music. As I say, it's a great no. start form there is. But um, yeah. we just, our brief for that album was Catherine, her solo stuff that she'd done before, and she'd done some self-released EPs and stuff. It was very ethereal, and she played piano and used all sorts of instruments like Celeste's and Glockenspiels yeah, yeah. and stuff like that. But she wasn't a band. Um, so I said to her, let me take your, who you are, a, a songwriter on a piano and put a band with it because that's what I understand. So that, that is literally what came out. I mean, we could, it just came out like that. Yeah. And yeah. yeah some, it, um, um, we tried to sort of come up with, you know, what it's like, but it's like, I think Steve Lamarck from Radio 6 Music summed it up best. He, he said it's dark pop. He said when we put the first single out, he said that's a dark pop classic. And, um, <clears throat> and, uh, so yeah, like a, uh, you know, uh, Catherine's uh, a doctor. She's uh, she's got a PhD from UCL, and she's uh, very interested in literature. Uh, I think her, her, her uh, PhD was in American literature or something. So she's very in uh, lyrics and and um, her writing is very important. So you know, there's there's a lot of depth to it lyrically. And well, you know, you know I I, descri- I don't know. I, this is probably going to sound utterly insane, but you know, when I first heard what goes around, my thought was. Was, oh, this was what would have happened if you'd have got Kate Bush in to sing on Little Kicks. <laughs> okay, well, yeah, I'll take that one as well. <laughs> you know, very descriptive, yeah. Kate Bush on Little Kicks, yeah. I mean, but that's yeah, kind I mean, of the know. sound is kind of it's kind of got that sort of sort of the sort of texture is the kind of texture you had on Little Kicks as opposed to on the first two albums. But the songwriting yeah. is more sort of the sort of Kate Bush inclination. That's yeah, I know what you a, mean. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, know, I know what you mean in terms of the fact that you know, it's uh, Little Kicks was maybe a little bit more sedate than the first two albums, but, yeah. but but you know, our brief for doing Catherine's record was to just you know just record her playing with a band and capture it live playing yeah. in the studio, and that's what it was. You know, they were live takes played in a studio, and we just went for it. So um, there's. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I don't think her, her voice is like Kate Bush or anything, but she's certainly no, but it's sort of left that... field and quirky. Yeah, yeah, and, it's got that and, sort and... of artistic inclination. 
Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's it's pop music, but you know it's not throwaway pop music. Yes, um, exactly. There's, yeah. there's, you know, there's some pop music like that. Like you could listen to like what's one of the poppiest Kate Bush songs, Babushka. You know, very poppy. <laughs> yeah. You know, it could be a novelty song, but you know it's not. You know, it's somewhat. You know, it's made by an artist. Yes. Um, and that's what Catherine is as well. You know, I mean, I, you know, she's got other stuff that's like real, you know, dirty garage rock stuff, but that never really made this album. Um. But I'm sure you'll hear stuff like that in the future. You know, it's um, yeah. you know, I, I can't say where she's going to go as an artist, but I just think this this was a project she wanted to do. It was a very specific project, an album, and and we've done it. You know, and hopefully people will like it. You know, you never know. I mean, but um, you know, I guess the reviews will start coming in over Christmas, and she's built up a, a really strong fan base. You know, um, we thought at the start that the Manson fans might not take to her, but they have. You know, they really liked. You know, they really liked her in her own right. And she's built up some fans. You know, it's built up a lot of Simple Minds fans. And um, yeah, you know, it's, it's so difficult for new artists in the music industry unless you're a homogenized Brit school yeah. pop pop singer now. And you know, she's not that. I mean, she's a really odd left field artist, and she's got you know on the radio and in magazines and on the websites, and she's touring and and really doing it. And um, you know, I'm I'm really proud that we did it. You know, we never knew we were. It, it was. It, it was a project that I started in my studio, and it became my pet project. Yeah, um, yeah. It, it became my main thing, working with Catherine, and in the end, you know, we finished it off, and then that uh, led me on when it was finished, and Catherine went off with Simple Minds at the back end of last year to start the rehearsals. I think there'd just been the Manson convention, and I played them one of my unreleased songs, and, like, The Guardian reported on it, Enemy put it in their singles of the week, and it was like record companies calling me up and it was like you know the obvious thing is to next is you know work with me you know and you know (laughs) go and retrieve myself from the past was my you know i I sort of lying in bed at night thinking about it and thinking like i can't put an orange boiler suit mascara out and go out doing the funky chicken on stage like (laughs) buffoon you know it's like it didn't even make sense then so it's not going to make sense now so i thought okay well i can I can go and retrieve the songs. I mean, I had, you know, dozens and dozens of half-finished songs and tracks and take them all out and put them on a record and, um, uh, and release it. And it's, it's got to this point now and I'm doing it. You know, we, 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 we're doing it. It's, um, that's what I'm going to do. You've got, uh, if I'm to understand this right, you've got Catherine and the other guys who are playing in the band, and you know, in the anchorers playing on the solo album as well. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. You know, I was just in a situation where we'd made the anchoress album and, and, um, I'd hunted high and low. <laughs> to find a rhythm section to work with. I wanted a drummer, really. You know, I was happy to play bass myself. But along came um, uh, John Barnett, who used to play in the upper room with the drums. And because I wanted to sit behind the mixing desk uh, when we were recording the Anchorest tracks, I wanted a bass player to play along with us. And we found a guy, Stax, uh, Ben Stack, who played around in different bands in London, and him and John Barnett played together. And the first time they played together, it was just like, oh, wow, you two just work together. They're just right in the pocket of what I like. They're not sessiony. They're not like, you know, super, you know, polished right, session yeah, guys. Yeah. But they just had such a great groove together. They were just exactly what I liked about musicians. And we just clicked as people. Um, um, we all got on together. 
and so stack stuck really so i think originally all we were going to do was work with a drummer a session drummer but it became much more than that you know and um so stacks and john were just fixed and of course i played guitars not all of them because catherine plays guitar as well but i was sort of the jobbing guitarist on the album and catherine playing keyboards and what have you yeah and we became you know we're not a band the anchor s isn't a band it's catherine that's a um, moniker for this album you know well the anchoress to... actually kind of strikes me as being taken out of the elements of her full name Catherine ann davis i don't know if you've noticed that but no i, I don't no but i, I think no. it's i think if you look at the consonants and the vowels it's kind of a shuffled up shortened version of her name I don't oh, know, okay. maybe it's yeah, that... not, maybe it's just coincidence, but that's no, what that I thought. No, that wouldn't surprise me at all. Catherine's got a PhD in English literature, English literature so right. she's written like reference books at Oxford University about literature, so nothing like that surprises me in, in her world. But, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not particularly in on that side of it. But, um, yeah, you know, I mean, and she'd done a few things under the name Catherine A.D. and she wanted to do mm. this. Maybe it was because it was just the whole thing was specifically done with, with me as a co-producer you know it's kind of a fresh start as it were yeah maybe or maybe it's just a separate thing so she's Mm. you know i suppose if it all uh you know fell on its bum she can just go back to being catherine ad and blame it all on me (laughs) (laughs) i can't tell you but you know it yeah it i remember her coming to me um you know at some point last year no it was before she put the first single out and said i'm thinking of doing it under a name um and i said oh right well, you know why you know you built up a little fan base in your alternative world and you know she put self-release stuff out and people knew her and she played some you know <clears throat> packed out gigs in london and stuff and um she said oh, you know i just want to do it under a project name which is a very specific thing coming here and working and doing it with you it's, yeah and and so she did so that's stuck now so if you look her up on facebook she's got a catherine ad page with you know ten thousand fans on it or whatever and she's got the anchor wow. page and she's both you know i i guess you know and um so you know who knows you know whether that's watering down the brand who knows i don't know but she's done you know she's done it and um i can completely understand so, i think so but you know but it's so much more than that you know the way we put the record together and we all know each other and we went into rehearsals and we played together and it, when it when it become time to do a solo album for me it was like you know do i just overdub it all sitting in a studio doing it like a jigsaw again and i just thought i'll just play with the same guys you know it's more just they were there you know i got on with them i'm not precious about it like i was when i was young where you know you want to play everything and all that yeah go in and play you know we just did it and um it evolved out of that so you know them guys have uh, have become my records as well so they're both records have evolved out of the same room and the same group of people i mean they're chalk and cheese records they're completely different um <clears throat> but that's because if you like you know that you know that that was Catherine's record and i helped her out and this is my record and she's playing some keyboards and co-writing a few of the songs and finishing off some of the old stuff with me so you know she's chipping into mine and i've got stacks and john in it and it's it's just a project you know where it goes who knows i li- literally have no idea i mean i you know, we're going to go out and do some live stuff, but what stuff? I've got, I got, I got no idea yet. Well, you're your own perfect support band. In fact, you don't have a support band. You just go on and do one long two and a half hour set, and you just well, switch yeah. between one and the other as you're doing it. Yeah, I think you know. Ultimately, ultimately, I think both of us would love to both get our albums out and go out and perform them live yeah. together. You know, because we, you know, we share the same band. We are, and um, oh yeah, it, it writes itself, doesn't it? And uh, yeah, I'm sure, you know, I'm sure we do have some um, 
you know, really good gigs like that. I'm sure we'd ram them out and uh, let's see if we get there. Let's see if we get there. You know, it's, well, hopefully um, they'll both be a great success. You... Well, yeah, you know, you've got to remember, I've never actually ever had a record out yet. I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, but I mean, that's true to the sort of staying power of Manson. I just sort of, I'm, you know, I'm forever posting on my Facebook page. And I looked the other day and there's like 25,000 people follow my Facebook page. But I still haven't actually ever had a record out, but I will definitely will do because I'm working on it now. Well, yeah. Well, you know, it's because of Manson that they're all there. And yeah. And, and I think because not just that, I mean, I, I think because mo- I put my because I made myself visible with the anchor s again you know right uh, yes yes is 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 part of it as well you know and obviously uh, you know i've you know been been involved in the music media a bit and stuff you know but you know not x factor itv or anything like that but i've been around you know Mm. well i yeah i was going to also make the point that you know when you think of manson you think of you um yeah well don't say that to the others but <laughs> well i'm not but, talking uh, to the others that's why i've said it <laughs> yeah i mean um you know uh yeah i mean you know it's more than that you know i mean the uh, guitar player wrote i think about a third of the songs i think like 40 or something you know so it was yeah, it was yeah. a big it was a big part of it you know it, was, it wasn't wasn't just me it was a it was a band you know it was a real entity as a live band and uh, but i suppose i was the driving force in it you know every band yes. was a driving force you know well you know, <clears throat> I mean, the Beatles had two, you know, John Lennon and Paul McCartney could both, you know, do it. And that. But, yeah, most bands, you know, whether it's the Police or Muse or with Matt Bellamy or whatever, you know, there's always a, like a main or Kelly Jones in Stereophonics. There's always a, a person with the drive, you know, it's, it's, it's yes. to do with drive. It's whoever got the drive. I had the drive when I was younger, you know. Um, that's where it comes from right well before we go then um and i will i'll play a little i'll play a little bit of the anchoress at the end so that people can uh get a get an idea of what we've been talking about but before we go we should mention doctor who once again considering this is ostensibly a doctor who podcast yeah um i just have you been watching the the new series i have yeah i watched saturday's episode and it's a bit odd just just uh I suppose it's setting it all up for the for the uh, season finale, and it yeah, which looked yeah. good on the trailer. I mean, I particularly like the um, the graphic of the uh, you know the un um, the undisguised TARDIS flying through space. That was that was quite nice, and then obviously you see a few Time Lord costumes and that. So you know, l- looks interesting. But um, yeah, I mean, a little bit of the last episode sort of lost me. Maybe I mean, I, I love Peter Capaldi as, a, as a, an actor, and I think the first two episodes of this new series were brilliant because I love Davros. Right. Yes. And um, <clears throat> well, Genesis later, obviously. Yeah, and it was yeah, yeah, of course, yeah, it was a whole like reboot of all like that, wasn't it? And it was, um, and so I, you know, I, I, I think I watched that like four times each episode, and I thought that was brilliant. And then some episodes sort of escaped me. <clears throat> the Zygons one was a bit disappointing, I think, in this series. They could have done so much more with that. Um, you know, I think it was too light. They should have made it darker. But, uh, yeah, you know, some episodes I like, some episodes I won't. But, you know, I, I think that that was, you know, I, I think I've always been like that with Who. I mean, I don't think, like, although Tom Baker was, you know, my era, I don't think, like, the Keys to Time series was amongst, you know, many of my favourite episodes ever. Right, you know, yeah. I, th- I think a lot more of the Pertwee ones were, were better than that. Um, do you but, remember yeah, Pertwee from when you were a kid, or do, was Tom your first Doctor? Yeah, no, I, I do remember Pertwee, yeah, absolutely, 100%. I remember Planet of the Spiders. Right, However, yes. I've looked back, um, I've looked back on... Um, uh, 
um, like when they were aired and when they were rerun. And I think I must have saw a rerun, which must have been 75 or 74. I was born in 1970. Yeah. So my first ever, ever memory of um, Doctor Who was Planet of the Spiders. That's because I, uh, I, I remembered that. I knew it. I knew what it looked like. Um, um, I knew Pertwee's face, but I'd never seen a full Pertwee. You know, it's hard to yeah, yeah, yeah. It's hard to visualise that now in the internet age. And you, it's on every single day on the horror channel. You can buy any DVD and that you want. But even back in the mid nineties, you know, I'd have to go. I'd go to Tower Records and search out VHS cassettes. Um, you know, with episodes out, and I'd sit down and watch Robot, and I'd be like, oh, wow, you know, this, this is amazing, I can't believe that, I remembered that, yes. I remembered that from a kid, the giant robot, I remembered that, and I don't know whether it was the first run or the rerun, but I remember it, I remember Terror of the Zygons, I remember Genesis of the Daleks, I remember specific clips, I remember the Dalek going over the top of the bunker, so I know I remembered it, and so, yeah, I, I think I remembered the last Pertwee episode, However, having going, gone back now and um, bought so many VHSs and DVDs and watched them on uh, satellite TV, I, I absolutely love them Pertwee episodes now. I think they're absolutely brilliant. I think they capture a moment um, in in time, you know, with yeah. so much outside broadcast. I think Doctor Who was in them in the classic series was so much better with the outside broadcast. And, of course, they used different types of film and the cameras and all sorts of mad things like that. And, uh, it They're was, quite psych- psychedelic, some of them. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, I mean, again, you know, there's there's some episodes that I'm not mad on. You know, like Carnival of Monsters can drag on a bit, but you know, it's still a good episode. It's still, you know, still it's still a great episode and that. And and Inferno is a bit a little bit long winded, but you know, some of my favourite episodes, like like I was watching Planet of the Daleks the other night, Death to the Daleks. You know, they're you know they're brilliant, they're absolutely brilliant episodes. And um, you're like me. I... <clears throat> Shouldn't say it, but those Dalek stories with John Pertwee—they're my guilty pleasures. Yeah, they're just absolutely brilliant. I remember reading a review review once where it's saying, "Our oh, Planet the Daleks is just like a run-of-the-mill, you know, another Dalek story." But I think they were the best ones ever. It's like you know the classic Dalek stories. I mean. You know, obviously, obviously, any Doctor Who fan of the classic series, you have a suspension of reality. You, you see yeah. something else. It's not to do with the effects or anything like that. You see something else in it. For me, what I <coughs> see in it is a remembrance of my childhood. Yes. Um, everyone has something brilliant they remember from when they're a child. So it could be, you know, Bill and Ben, the flowerpot men. Um, but it can be something brilliant like Doctor Who that can live with you forever. So, you, you know... Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I just, you know, it's uh, you know, it can always live with you. And I remember speaking to somebody who shall remain nameless and say, "Oh my," they said, "Oh my guilty pleasure." When I was a kid, I loved WWF wrestling, and, it's, <laughs> and they're going, "I'll always love it." And I watch it on the sly, you know, like that. And I'm, I'm like that with Doctor Who. I'll tape it every day and see what's on and um, um, off, off the horror channel. And you know, it's, it's just for it's just always been part of my life. But I, I, I'm not like a mad obsessive about every no, episode. No. I think some episodes are, are amazing, like the two Auton uh, episodes uh, in in the, the Pertwee series. They're brilliant. There's just a million different elements. The fact that plastic was the new trendy thing, and it show you like Acton High Street and um, yeah. and the dummies, the dummies coming out the window of you know Burton's window with the guns. You know what a an incredible piece of imagery for 1970. 
television in 1970. Yeah. Very British, very bizarre. A dummy in a shop window comes to life, and 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 a man in a phone box lands from traveling through space to try and stop. You know, it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't Americanisms where you know Martians from outer space. You know, it was very very British. It was very yes. parochial, and it it with the ideas and the terror of the ideas. That thing like. You know, you really would have nightmares when you were a kid, you know, and um, the dummies coming out of shop windows and the Daleks. And I remember Terror of the Zygons. My God, I was absolutely terrified of that. And, uh, you know, screaming in the middle of the night, you know, with. Um, <laughs> and um, so it, it lived with me from a very, very young age. It must have been four or five, um, my very earliest memories. And then um, I think. Uh, when was Destiny of the Daleks? That was 77, was 79 it? 79 Destiny of the Daleks. 79 was it? There you go. So, okay, so I would have been eight. Um, yeah. So that, when that came on, it was, the first, was that first or second episode of the series? I can't remember. It was the first one. It was the one. That's that was, right, yeah. yeah. So first one with Lala Ward, and then, so it's the first one that sees, I, that was, I, that is when I could absorb it all, you know, then. Yeah. It, it wasn't just, crazy images on a TV like it was when you were four or five that was when I absorbed it so I watched that and I knew it was a follow up to Genesis of the Daleks and I knew what was going on and and uh and so, so that was brilliant to me, and um, and and that whole series, you know, that that was great as well, and um, I think there's a, a real resurgence in that. Was I think I sort of lost interest in the in the previous series when I was probably seven or something, which was like the Rybos operation, yeah, and, yeah, etc., etc. But yeah, going back now, I, I can sort of cherry pick the episodes I love. It's like a comfort blanket. I'll just watch them. I'll just, I'll just over and over, even just on in the background. You know, I'm a bit, I'm a, I like the 70s. You know, it's my era. I was born in the 70s. So, you know, yeah. it's, uh, it's always a fixed moment in time for me. And, um, it's incredible, really, the amount of, um, money that went into some of them, uh, Pertwee episodes. They're, uh, huge outside broadcasting, um, facilities and casts and all sorts of stuff, which was, uh, and, um, and the stories were great, you know. I mean, they're, they're so massively influential, the writers and, you know, even on things like Star Wars and all, you know, all stuff. I, I think I remember, was it the, the uh, the Ice Warriors uh, commander was it influenced Darth Vader with the helmet and the cape and all like that. And, yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, it all it's so influential on on things, you know, and um, you know, and, and uh, so yeah, that period was really really great. It, it, that, actually, that's uh, yeah. Just thinking of that, that's one one of the few characters they haven't brought back yet, isn't it? Alpha Centauri. They're gonna have to bring him back or her or whatever. <laughs> No, probably better not actually in this day and age. <laughs> God, that'd be, yeah, with the Hoover as arms, just brilliant. The uh, the giant green penis in a blanket. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, God, yeah, that's brilliant. Ah, oh, well, on that note, I think we call it a night, and I shall let you get off and back to your comfort blanket with your Genesis of the Daleks. <clears throat> probably back into the studio for another couple of hours before I drop drop dead of exhaustion. But uh, fair enough. Yeah. Well, Paul, thank you so much for joining me for this. No problem. Oh, it's been a real, it's been a real treat for me. Absolutely no problem. I'm always, always happy to speak to the the Doctor Who world. Really, <laughs> I genuinely am. You know, I talk if I do interviews and stuff. It's always about music. So yeah, really happy to do it. And uh, hope someone, some someone hears it. And and when they do, drop me a message on Facebook or something. Make sure that someone's heard it, and then I'll I'll they'll be happy. 
<laughs> Brilliant. Yes, absolutely. Right. Well, thank you for that. And uh, well, until next time, then I was JR and we'll speak again soon.